From the historic campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, where the good, the true, and the beautiful are taught, nurtured, and honored, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. And what you're talking about here is just a massive, like almost incalculable level of of funding interference in the way we think and talk about every single issue. This is your host, Scott Bertram. Welcome to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. And that was Molly Hemingway, Senior Journalism Fellow here at Hillsdale College, Editor-in-Chief at The Federalist, and also contributor at Fox News Channel. We talk in depth with Molly today about challenges in our election system and also problems inside the media. Molly, thanks for joining us. Great to be here with you. Talk a little about elections, a little about media. You recently gave some testimony in front of the House Administration Committee on U- U.S. elections, your research, your work in the past. What was what was your message that you wanted to get across to these members of the House? Well, the purpose of the committee hearing was to discuss Zuckerbucks, which is the colloquial term for the private takeover of government election offices to run get-out-the-vote efforts in a partisan fashion. And it's named that because of Mark Zuckerberg funding funding that type of operation in the 2020 election. But it's ongoing in all sorts of ways. And so that was the purpose of the committee hearing. But And I was talking about that because my book, Rigged, goes into that topic quite a bit. But I also wanted people to think through all the ways that our elections are under attack. And it's not just through the private takeover of government election offices. It's also through the censorship industrial complex, which suppresses news and information that that does not match with like approved narratives and elevates false news and information that does match with approved narratives. And we have a really troubled press right now that is not doing a good job of accurately informing voters. And we also have an amazing amount of lawfare directed against candidates. You know, one of the prime ways that the United States views other elections as not having integrity is if you don't allow people to vote for the candidate of their choice, you remove people from the ballot or you uh, gin up prosecutions in order to bankrupt or imprison your political opponents. And we've got all that going on right now. Zuckerbucks and the investment of those funds into areas for donor, not donor, for voter sign up and voter registration Is that going to play as big of a role in 2024 now that we are less than a year out as it looked like it did in 2020? I think it'll still play a very big role there. The amount of funding that's going into it has actually increased. And some of that is being done through the federal government. President Biden in March of 2017 signed an executive order basically requiring each federal agency to come up with a plan for how to get involved in elections in a way that had previously been viewed as incredibly inappropriate. So now if you provide welfare benefits to a certain segment of the population, you're supposed to also get involved in getting those people to the polls. That was always viewed as as inappropriate because the people giving you the benefit are telling you, in essence, to keep voting for them. And now we've got that happening at agencies all over the all over the country. And it's something that people need to be aware of. Part of what you talked about was the um, the lack of trust in elections, the t- deterioration of elections due to lengthy election seasons. And we've talked about this previously. Used to have an election day. Everyone votes using the same information. Now we have seasons, sometimes months, sometimes six weeks, seven weeks in advance where people 
get a chance to go cast a ballot. What is the effect of the fact that we are no longer voting using the same information? We are voting at different times of this election season. Right. So there's something to the civic health of everybody going through a campaign together, getting the same set of information together, making a decision based on the facts that you get in the campaign, and then having the result revealed fairly quickly so that you then have to accept the result and and move on. We have expanded this into such a lengthy period of time that people are voting on different sets of facts. You can frequently see people voting before you've even had a debate, whether it's a gubernatorial debate or a presidential debate, which is just, you know, it's just not where, it's not, it's not the best possible situation if you want to have civic health and shared, shared set of facts. And it can't be healthy that now so much of turnout and so much of balloting is, a, is about the, the ballot itself and not the candidate, meaning you're casting a vote for a party or this avatar rather than voting on the issues or what happened in a debate or what's happening leading up to an election day. Well, or even just being a responsible, informed voter. I'm so old that I remember when people would talk about the need to have informed voters. People were worried about people coming to the polls without really understanding the significance of what they were voting for. Well, goodness, like Mm -hmm. now you have people who are voting who might not even really know that they're voting or that they are that there's an election or who the candidates are. So much of the process is being handled by third parties who register the other person to vote, request an application for the ballot for that person on their behalf, or ballots just come to that person without them even knowing there's something going on. And then you have people who come in and, you know, purport to help someone fill out a ballot. Let's say it's in a nursing home or in some other uh, some other place where the the level of information that they're getting might not match with what we would want. And so you have really high levels of problems with that. That used to be a bipartisan concern, Mm -hmm. and now everyone's just trying to ballot harvest as much as possible. Molly Hemingway with us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You had many states make these changes back in 2020 and say, well, due to COVID, we're going to change the way we do X or Y when it comes to the election. How many of those states are still using COVID-era election rules and regulations now that COVID no longer is the issue it was. Right. So for decades, you had certain people in the Democrat Party who were looking to radically change the way we vote. And they had never been able to find a way to make that happen. Because COVID happened, it was viewed as an extreme measure. So some of these really radical changes, for instance, mass mailing out of ballots to uh, addresses, regardless of whether someone had voted in years or even maybe was alive or not, you know, that type of change was instituted. And by and large, most of those changes have actually remained. There are states where they have moved to increase the integrity of voting. And, you know, that could be anywhere from Georgia to Wisconsin. You then have even after some of those states made efforts to improve the situation in terms of the integrity of their elections, sometimes you had governors veto those efforts. But not as many states improved things as there should have been, and particularly in the states where the problems exist. You've seen a lot of money pouring into swing states that have heavily Democratic populations in city centers, and those are the states that are least likely to have had changes. Now, there is the exception that Georgia has had slight improvements to their voting laws. It's not really anywhere near what they should have, but they did have some slight improvements, and they are a swing state. You testified in front of the House Administration Committee on this. What is the role of Congress with these rules and regulations? And so many are determined and put in place by the states who control the elections inside that state. 
Well, and that's it should be that states control how elections are done because the Constitution leaves it to state legislatures to set the rules for a given election. By the way, that was one of the problems in 2020 was that frequently entities other than state legislatures made very dramatic changes to the laws in a non-constitutional fashion. But there's still a role for Congress to play, and there has been legislation, including the banning of private takeover of government election offices. And so there's a healthy debate about what to do there. But the House Administration Committee in particular actually has some oversight role uh, because they will be, you know, they're the people who seat the members of Congress. And so they've been interested in, in doing much more oversight in that area than we saw that committee do in previous years. Talking with Molly Hemingway here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. She's a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, and also a Fox News contributor. You mentioned the phrase, the uh, censorship industrial complex, a little earlier on. And I think some of this may have been new since the last time we even talked. Your, your personal experience and what you now know about how some of your work and how some of the research was suppressed censored by various social media entities. What, what's your experience with that? Well, uh, there are a couple of things there. The House Judiciary and Weaponization Committee did reveal a list of Americans who had been censored by the government or who the government had worked with tech companies to censor. And I was on that list, much, much to my surprise. Um, and then separately and much more importantly, the Federalist is suing the U.S. government the State Department for its role in the censorship industrial complex. We are doing that with the state of Texas, along with the Daily Wire, and we are suing them for their violation of our First Amendment rights for funding, marketing, generally supporting an ongoing censorship regime that involves literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different entities, both for-profit groups, NGOs, academic institutions, all working to suppress the distribution of news and information that counters their preferred narrative. A couple of weeks ago, we saw emails obtained by Congressman Jim Jordan that show White House officials pressuring Amazon to curb the distribution of books that they thought were discouraging Americans from getting the COVID vaccine. These are actual emails between government officials and private company and Amazon where the government is saying, don't put this in front of people. Yeah, it's been a couple of years of horrifying releases of information about different federal employees or agencies working to censor. And it is sometimes shocking to just see them being so open and honest about how they're trying to limit the distribution of American speech, which is a violation of our First Amendment rights. And yet it's also true that it's so much bigger than that. There are systems that they are developing and financing and marketing and encouraging big tech platforms to use that even use like AI mm -hmm. to come up with speech patterns that they deem inappropriate or they rule them as disinformation or misinformation. And then they use it to, to suppress like whole broad swaths of speech, whether it's on foreign policy or COVID policy or, you know, what your thoughts are on radical gender ideology, pretty much all the, and I, I just want to make up the point too, these are all issues that we vote on. And so this is just a level of interference in our elections that is unfathomable. You remember during the Russia collusion hoax, the claim was made that that Russia had destroyed our election integrity because mm -hmm. they'd spent $100,000 in Facebook ads, right. some of which went for Hillary Clinton and some of which went for Donald Trump. And what you're talking about here 
is just a massive, like almost incalculable level of of funding interference in the way we think and talk about every single issue. And it is an existential crisis for the country. And I'm, I'm starting to sense that people care much more about it. I, I think they're starting to become aware of how many agencies are involved. It's State Department. It's Department of Homeland Security. It's also really a lot of military agencies that are putting a lot of time and effort into controlling speech. Existential crisis? Is that the word? Do you, yes. I want to make sure I quote accurately. So what can we do to address something like this that you call an existential crisis, but we also know is so so deeply rooted into so many different areas of the federal government at this point? There are multiple things that can be done. So first off, I would say members uh, at both the federal and state level, elected officials need to be doing whatever they can to for forbid or enforce the rules and protections that we have for for speech. It's also true that one of the big efforts that is happening here is to kill those media entities that do not follow the party line. And so it's important to read and listen and fund all of those entities and make sure like you have to we have to work a little harder to get a variety of viewpoints and you should be a well-read or well-listened to um, well-listening person. So you want to you want to look into all of these things and you have to put a little effort into it. Molly Hemingway with us, senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale, editor in chief of The Federalist and Fox News contributor. I want to turn our attention to the media. Never a lack of stories to discuss. I'm interested somewhat in the response to the special counsel report on President Biden is a well-meaning, forgetful old man, as the report indicated. And we saw a story, I believe it was in Politico a few days later, saying, man, some White House reporters noticed this stuff and they weren't sure whether or not they should tell the American public these things that they noticed about the president. Maybe we should have acted a little more quickly. Do you think there's any chance that coverage of the president will change in any meaningful way? in the wake of that report. I am not optimistic that we will see much improved coverage, although you did detect a slight change. But the context again is, during the previous administration, you had, I think, hundreds, if not thousands of stories about how clearly Donald Trump was unwell and he needed mm-hmm. that people needed to use the 25th amendment to go after him. You have with this special counsel report that was accepted by a member of Joe Biden's cabinet, Merrick Garland. So this was accepted by him. A, a claim that he was that he would be found by a jury to be basically unfit to stand trial. And Merrick Garland accepted this. Has anyone even asked Merrick Garland if he's organizing a 25th amendment type removal from office? So you have hysteria on the one side and just almost like you know, jackals crazed every time they encounter any member of the press team or the president himself during the Trump administration. And then just a general level of politeness that is unwarranted, I think, for the current administration. The, the, the It's just such a dramatic swing. It's ridiculous. So even if they're a little bit better, that's not what's needed. They need to be far, far, far better. I thought it was odd in some of the reporting after the fact, and many in, in, in these news analysis pieces, which are, of course, just opinion pieces put on the news section, put inside the news sections, in which there was a, a ex- explanation that, well, how can special counsel her, uh, you can't make a diagnosis. This is not the way you make a diagnosis of someone's mental capabilities. But the report was not a diagnosis. The report was a reflection of the questions that were asked, the answers that were given, and how he thought a jury of regular Americans would react to seeing President Biden on trial. There was no sort of medical 
diagnosis inside these pages. Yes and no. I actually think there's something to be said for how inappropriate it is that we have these special counsels that get to decide for everybody how things are going to go. We all see President Biden is not mentally well. That's not news to anyone. So so nobody's really going to be upset at seeing Robert Hur say it. On the other hand, it's not really his place to talk this way. Even the real reason why a Democrat jury in Washington, D.C. would never convict Joe Biden is not because just that they see that he's mentally frail. It's that Democrat juries in D.C. do not convict mm-hmm. Democrats of crimes. You know, it's just so it's so it kind of even gets out of it, it gets out ahead of that issue, which is a really important issue, how we practice rule of law. The Mueller investigation into Donald Trump was absolutely asinine with 18 months of investigation where at the beginning they knew there was no Russia collusion and yet they then investigated for 18 months obstruction of justice because you had the had Trump complaining about the allegation that he was secretly a Russian spy mm-hmm. who had colluded with Russia to steal the election. But even like you go back to the Hillary Clinton situation where James Comey comes in, it is clear that she broke the law. He says that himself. And then he says, no reasonable jury would convict her of this. It's like, that's not your place, buddy. You know, it's it's just a, not a good system for dealing with the situations that we have. Also, I just want to point out, Robert Hur is saying... Yeah, Joe Biden completely mishandled classified information from a time in his career when he didn't have declassification authority. And so we're going to let him off with that because because he's incompetent. And by the way, we're also trying to literally imprison the former president who did have declassification authority because we hate him. I mean, that's not what he's saying, but like the it, it's just it's just also inappropriate. <laughs> Molly, news recently about the radio conglomerate Odyssey, and they declared bankruptcy. And Soros Fund Management, yes, that Soros, has come in to buy a big portion of the debt. They're they're not the largest owner of Odyssey. On the other hand, you have a situation like Sinclair in the TV world. Sinclair owns uh, hundreds of TV stations across the country. Democrats and the media are always looking at them, targeting them, looking for right-wing Republican conservative talking points on stations across the country. Uh, now that George Soros is, in, is the majority holder in Odyssey, I just don't think we're going to see the same level of scrutiny over radio stations in markets all across the country that now fall underneath the Soros fund management umbrella. Do not think you will see people complaining that this means that all of these radio stations and programs that fall under this are in question because they're owned by Soros. But I think it just also shows how seriously the left takes the media. They understand that in order to achieve what they want to achieve, it's important to control a lot of news organizations, and they have invested in it. So rather than be upset about George Soros investing in, or the Soros family, (laughs) Soros people, investing in this media entity, I think people should think about what they're doing to support other media entities. Why not? You know, there's a lot of just Mm -hmm. like leaving the field to all of these left-wing outlets. I hear people all the time make fun of the Washington Post or the Atlantic for losing tens or even $100 million in a given year. And you, you can make fun of them for that. But on the other hand, they have owners, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Lorraine Powell Jobs, who know that by owning these media entities, they can control elections and they can control what people think about all sorts of issues. They get to set narratives. They get to define issues. They get to push 
in many cases, extremely radical viewpoints. And I'm not recommending anyone do that, but that shows the power of the media. Mm -hmm. And rather than complain, people should invest in media. Molly Hemingway is Senior Journalism Fellow at Hillsdale College, Editor-in-Chief at The Federalist and Fox News Contributor. Molly, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you. Up next, we talk with Brandon Weikert, his recent book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. We'll discuss next. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. Be sure to check out the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu for older episodes of this show and other Hillsdale College audio. We're joined now by Brandon J. Weikert. He's the author of a couple of books, including Winning Space and Biohacked. His most recent is The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. You can find him on X, formerly Twitter, at WeTheBrandon. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. It's such a pleasure to be here, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. The Shadow War uh, does a lot to predict what we have seen in the last few months in Israel and the terror attack by Hamas. What, if anything, were you surprised about by what happened back in October of last year? And what do you believe was Iran's role in executing it? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. So I think the, the surprise for me was how unawares the Mossad was caught they had apparently been receiving some uh, intelligence that the Hamas was up to something, but similar to 9-11 here in the United States where the Bush administration was receiving warning indicators from the intelligence uh, networks, it was sort of a failure to believe and they just were not, they did not act quick enough to, to respond to the growing threat that was Hamas. The question of what was Iran's role I think is a very important one. We don't want to acknowledge it. The Biden administration doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that Iran's hidden hand is felt in all of these moves going on in the Middle East, um, particularly the October 7th attack. The Iranians are operating on a belief 
that they have to push the Americans out of the region. And the only way they can do that is by attacking American allies in the region like Israel, like Saudi Arabia. And they want to prevent those American allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Sunni Arab states as well, from aligning with each other in a formal alliance to contain Iran. That was exactly what Donald Trump was trying to do with the Abraham Accords. That was what Netanyahu said he was doing a few weeks before the October 7th attacks when he went to the UN and he held up the map of the new Middle East showing how Saudi Arabia and Israel were cooperating together against Iran. Three weeks after that, the October 7th attack happens. And the first thing that happens as a result is the Saudis have to step back officially from any alliance with Israel because their people are upset that Israel is now having to attack Arabs, fellow Arabs in the Palestinian territories. This was the exact plan of Iran. They need to keep these groups separated and then they need to, with the help of China and Russia, basically push the American influence out of the region so they can become the dominant power. I've asked this question to a few people and gotten disparate answers. So I ask you, do you believe that at this point that Iran is seeking a wider regional war? Are they looking for an excuse to enter and and become more involved in this conflict? I think that the long-term plan, I say that the plan for this year, 2024, is to push as far as they can And I think they're waiting to see how the results of the American presidential election is going to be. If Donald Trump, who seems to be the likely nominee to the Republican Party, if Trump is the winner of the 2024 election, I do not believe the Iranians will risk a war because they know that Trump will strike back with ferocity. If, however, Biden is able to get reelected, I think that the Iranians will continue escalating. They need to create chaos. By the way, They are being backed very, very seriously by China uh, and to a lesser extent Russia. But the Iranians need to basically create chaos in the region that will hopefully push the Americans out and allow for them to ascend the ladder as being the dominant power uh, in the region. And that is part of their imperial project. And I think that they are seeking a wider war. They may not be seeking it at this specific moment because they're on their back foot right now with Israel going on the offensive. But I think, yes, if if if, if they can, they are seeking to expand the war the way they want to do it, basically using unconventional tactics, using those terrorist networks and the threat of, you know, dirty bomb attacks and whatnot and terrorism in general as the means to do it. Talking with Brandon J. Weikert, his book is The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, another group we've heard about often in these past two months or so, the Houthi rebels, and they're discussed in the book, The Shadow War. Who are these Houthi rebels and why and and how is Iran engaged with them? Well, the Houthis uh, are another example of the unbelievable failure that was the Obama-Biden foreign policy for the Middle East. The Houthis are basically a, a Shiite Muslim tribe uh, in Yemen, and they were sort of they rose to prominence after the Obama administration dropped the ball. Uh, in Yemen in 2009 and 10, basically Obama inadvertently helped to overthrow the the monarchy in Yemen, which then created all this chaos in which the Shiite Houthis stepped up, backed by their fellow Shiites in Iran, uh, and basically became a huge problem, not just for Yemen and Saudi Arabia next door, but for the world, because the Houthis, under the direction of Iran, 
are using increasingly sophisticated technology like advanced missiles and drones to harass and target oil production facilities like the Abqaiq refinery in eastern Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're using these weapons to target and go after, as we're seeing now in the Red Sea, uh, sh critical shipping. All of this is designed as part of Iran's uh, shadow war in the economic realm. It's designed to basically make the economies of the West really slow down and be damaged uh, because the, the the shipping lanes, for instance, are having to be shifted away from uh, the, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal and around the Horn of Africa, which causes the cost of everything to go up. And in an economic situation such as we have today, that's going to spell disaster, they think, in Iran. They think it will spell disaster for the Americans and the West. And so that's part, the Houthis are part of this sort of unconventional, all measures short of direct war policy that the Iranians have spent the last 40 years crafting. Forgive me if I missed it, but I don't recall seeing in the shadow war specific discussion about what's happening now in the Red Sea with shipping lanes, shipping channels, uh, you know, those those giant shipping container ships having to, to now go uh, south uh, around South Africa to get where, where goods need to go. What's the strategy here? Again, Houthi rebels through Iran and what they're doing in the Red Sea, and, and how does the U.S. and how do other countries counteract that? Yeah, so I didn't talk specifically about the Red Sea. Uh, the book was finished in May of 2021, and it was highly predictive. Um, but the, I did talk about the examples of the Houthis harassing uh, shipping in the Strait of, of uh, Bab el-Mandeb, as well as their overall threat to things like the Abcake oil refinery. And you can take what I wrote in that chapter, I believe it was entitled Oil War, you can take that chapter and you can apply the methods and the framework that the Houthis were using back then, you can apply it for understanding what they're doing in the Red Sea. This is all part of that economic warfare I was talking about. And the, one of the things that we should be doing uh, as the United States, we have this supposedly most powerful Navy in the world. And it's very strange to me that the Biden administration will not deploy it in a way that would allow for the Navy to quickly dispatch the Houthi rebels. The Houthis are not some great threat. They are being allowed to operate as a great threat because the Biden administration is refusing to deploy the necessary force to end this threat. They're, wa they're waiting for the Seashell Navy to join some grand coalition that will suddenly go after the Houthis. We don't need coalition warfare for going after the Houthis. The Navy should be able to do that on their own. The fact that they're not, I think, is another indicator of the fact that the Biden administration is dedicated to its um, accommodationist strategy with Iran and doesn't want to have to admit in a election year that their strategy has failed by going after Iranian proxies and risking Iran striking back. But if they don't do it, what happens is it signal, signals to the wider region that America is both weak and incompetent because we can't even handle the Houthis. That is not something you want to be seen as in that part of the world. It invites greater challenge. Brandon J. Weinkert with us. At the end of the book, The Shadow War, you discuss some solutions to these problems outline what could be done largely following building upon the Trump administration's Abraham Accords. Are your recommendations still operational in the wake of what we see in the past three, four months? They're certainly, we're certainly reaching a point where they won't be, but I still think in the next eight months, they can be applied. The key thing here is bringing Israeli 
and Saudi power to bear against Iran, not necessarily in direct war, but to basically take that strategy of containment and deterrence that we used in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and applying it at a regional level against Iran. And I think that the Trump administration was ahead of its time with that policy. I think it is still very much applicable. Um, there might need to be some adjustments made. We might need to use some degree of force to sort of put Iran back in its box in the immediate term. But I think in the medium to long term, I absolutely think the policy of Abraham Accords plus maximum um, pressure on Iran is the way to go. It's the only way to avoid another Iraq war disaster. And it's the only way to avoid basically giving the region over to Iran and their Chinese and Russian partners. And we do not want that to happen because of the oil and natural gas interests there and the fact that so much of the world's shipping passes through that part of the world. We do not want to hand that region over to anti-American uh, powers. One more question. You mentioned, mentioned Saudi Arabia and inside the shadow war, you call Saudi Arabia an imperfect ally. Yeah. Why should we think of them that way? And, and, and can Saudi Arabia be useful as a counterweight to what Iran is in the region? Well, they're an imperfect ally because you just you, you look at the fact that so many of their people are pro-Islamist. You look at the fact that, you know, Al-Qaeda really is a byproduct of Saudi domestic politics from the 80s and 90s. You look at the fact also that so much of the global Islamist movement is funded by members of the Saudi royal family. Um, you know, they're a problem and also the human rights. I mean, they're, they're a problem for us. But ultimately, they are very useful when we're talking about not only countering terrorism, particularly after 2003, the Saudis have become very effective in, in using their, their counterintelligence and their counterterrorism capabilities to go after terrorists that we are also threatened by, but also because they are so under Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, at least his leadership, they are so dedicated to containing Iran. Even now, even though publicly they've sort of distanced themselves from Israel, behind the scenes, uh, I have been told that Saudi diplomats are very still much in connection with or in contact with the Israelis. And in fact, when these Yemen drones and missiles are flying over Saudi territory on their way to Israel, the Saudis have no compunction about shooting those systems down. So that should indicate to us that even though publicly they're distancing from Israel, the Saudis do not want to see an Iran that is a or nuclear armed. Brandon J. Weikert, his book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, is available now. You can find him on X, formerly Twitter, at WeTheBrandon. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, we talk with Dr. Benedict Whalen from Hillsdale's English Department about Milton's Paradise Lost. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, 
human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in the Exodus story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash new course. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. You can get an email every time there's a new episode of the program. Go to radiohour.hillsdale.edu, click on subscribe, and enter your email address. We're joined by Dr. Ben Whalen, Associate Professor of English at Hillsdale College. Dr. Whalen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Discussing John <clears throat> Milton today and his great work, Paradise Lost. We start with the author, himself. Who was John Milton? What made him stand out among the writers of his time? So Milton comes at the end of the period we call the English Renaissance. Uh, he lives th uh, through the um, in, in the middle of the, the 17th century. He is uh, a towering figure in English literature. His Paradise Lost is uh, perhaps the great epic in English literature. Certainly in this period, it's it stands right there with uh, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen as the two great uh, English English epics. He's a very, very interesting and, and uh, complex uh, thinker. Uh, Milton wrote poetry. He also wrote many, many works of prose on theology, on politics. Uh, his work, uh, The Areopagitica, uh, advocates for freedom of religion and for freedom of speech. So he's, he's an involved thinker. He's a true Renaissance man mm -hmm. uh, involved in these different uh, fields. In his own uh, political conviction, in, in general, I can say that uh, he was a Republican. So if we think of England in the 17th century, we can think of the, the Stuart monarchy and we have James I and Charles I. And then, of course, the terrible English civil wars in the 1640s, the, the Republican party, the parliamentarian party uh, beheads Charles I. And they have this interregnum government during the 50s under Cromwell. Uh, and then that falls apart after Cromwell's death and they invite the Stuarts back. And so you have Charles II and James II. Well, Milton was deeply invested in the Republican parliamentarian interregnum government uh, and in fact served as the secretary of foreign tongues. Uh, so really so, sort of like a, a secretary of state figure for mm -hmm. England at the time. And Milton uh, uh, cared about that very much. So he did not like the English monarchy and uh, was loved this, this, this different Republican government that they formed. Paradise Lost, is, his great work is published in 1667. Milton is 60 at yeah. this time. Is this in some ways the culmination of, of a life of work for Milton? Yes, uh, it, it certainly is. He had written um, many different wonderful lesser poems uh, before this, but by by fifteen sixty four, again the the um, the government that Milton loved and had served in, in fact, has fallen apart, and England has invited uh, the king back to the throne of England. So, Paradise Lost is interesting. It comes at the end of this life. It, it comes at a period of profound disappointment uh, for Milton. His political hopes, his public hopes, mm -hmm. are, are profoundly disappointed. And he retreats from 
the political and public world to write this great epic, Paradise Lost. Uh, so, so it's um, it's his it's his magnum opus. He does write uh, two more great works after Paradise Lost. I think they're uh, both under underrated, Paradise Regained, and then Samson Agonistes. Uh, but certainly, Paradise Lost is 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 sort of the culmination of his life's work up to that point. The more that I talk with our English professors about these great works, the more I'm I, I don't know. I, I enjoy the fact that even back in these times, writers are saying, oh, you know what? I, I could write a sequel to that. Like it's, <laughs> it's not unusual for them. Uh, I was talking to Dr. Todd Mack about Don yes. Quixote and Don Quixote, there's a sequel. There's, yes. there's now there's two parts of like, yes. it's successful. Let's run it back. Yes. It's not a new thing. <laughs> yes, I know. It, it's, uh, it's, it is. It's really wonderful. And, and actually with Paradise Regained, just uh, a brief tangent there, Paradise Lost, of course, is with Adam and Eve and the transgression in the garden. Uh, and so I like to ask my students when I teach them Paradise Lost and I talk about Paradise Regained, what do you think the sequel is? And and the common the, the common guess is either the crucifixion or the or the resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, which is perfectly sensible. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that the sequel that Milton uh, chooses is in fact um, the temptation in the desert mm. when, when Christ overcomes Satan's temptations, which actually has a nice poetic resonance with yeah. what, what occurs in Paradise Lost. The Paradise Lost contains, as you've mentioned, the biblical story of the fall of man, Adam yeah. and Eve, the story that people know. Yeah. What is the value that Milton adds here to make it a classic of literature? The, the poem is, it's a massive work. Uh, it spans 12 books in its final form. Um, and uh, the the account from Genesis, it's very short. So uh, in, in one sense, you could look at Paradise Lost as the extended meditations mm-hmm. of a deeply learned poet. Uh, on what sin is and how it came about. How could perfect and unfallen human beings enjoying paradise come in fact to 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 be so selfish uh, to turn away from uh, the simple rules that that God has given them. So it's an extended meditation in, in part on that. The uh, I'll say that Milton also in in the very prologue to the whole poem he says that here I am going to the, the quote is pursue things unattempted yet in mm. prose or rhyme, which which actually could be alarming. I mean it's interesting it's bold, uh, but it's it's also can alarm some Christians because the. When he says, I'm uh, uh, pursuing things unattempted in prose or rhyme, well, that would include sacred scripture. So the, the question does become, it's a legitimate question, Milton, what do you have to add mm-hmm. to this account? What, what uh, for instance, did Abraham leave out? <laughs> what, what, what's lacking? Why, why do we need this poem? We have our main characters, Adam, Eve, yeah. and Satan. I think we've got to talk about Satan. What, what, what should we make of the character of Satan in Paradise Lost? Some argue he's the true hero. He's the most interesting <clears throat> character in Paradise Lost. But he's also clearly presented as the origin of all evil. Is that dichotomy yeah. in some ways key to what makes Paradise Lost work? Yes, it it is. the The poem opens. Uh, Milton, of course, is a, is a great student of the classics, and so he he's read his Homer and his Virgil, and so he, the poem opens in media res, uh, in the middle of things, which is convention for for the beginnings of epics. And the beginning of things uh, in this poem is is with. Satan already having fallen, but the humans not. Mm-hmm. And so the poem, the first character we meet in Paradise Lost, other than the narrator, uh, is Satan, who's rolling around in the fires of hell uh, and coming to his senses after his great defeat in heaven. And then Satan speaks, and he's got this tremendous energy and courage and uh, vitality and and 
a certain sort of charisma and character that's that's quite powerful. And so it's a startling beginning uh, for for readers who might expect a sort of two dimensional caricature <laughs> Satan. Ah, I, you know, I'm going to uh, bring man to his downfall. That's not what we get at all. We get a passionate, suffering, thoughtful Satan, and uh, so. Uh, that that is Milton invites this sort of problem that we have, where where later thinkers and readers of the poem, especially the in the Romantic period, the English Romantics commonly saw Satan as the hero of the mm -hmm. poem. Uh, they thought his sort of bold, aspiring courage against the implacable, you know, calm uh, perfection of God is is actually admirable. Mm -hmm. Now I'll say that uh, uh, I I think Milton's poem does invite these questions about Satan. Ultimately, I, I think Satan is not who Milton intended uh, to be the hero, but in fact, this is part of Milton's very art is is to create is to create a Satan who in who sort of does attract us. We are fallen human beings after all, and mm -hmm. Milton is in a way perhaps showing some of our own fallenness to us. C.S. Lewis at the beginning of the 20th century wrote a really wonderful, I think it's 70 or 80 page preface to Paradise Lost. And C.S. Lewis addresses this question, did Milton mean for Satan to be the hero? C.S. Lewis is convinced, no, this is, this couldn't be Milton's intention. But of course, he is trying to write a, a, a realistic character. Yeah. And so there's a certain excellence to Satan, though it, though it shouldn't uh, seduce us. Yeah. <laughs> Talking with Dr. Ben Whalen, Associate Professor of English at Hillsdale College about John Milton and Paradise Lost. Adam and Eve, disobey. What do we learn from here about, about disobedience, revolt, those themes that are found throughout Paradise Lost? It's, it's, it's very difficult. The disobedience comes about uh, in part through selfishness. Uh, there's, you can see the turn inward. Um, mm -hmm. we, of course, Eve eats the fruit first. And Milton gives us her her long the the long temptation of Satan with Eve, and it's a temptation that you can become like God, and in fact, particularly uh, that you can become superior to Adam. Uh, and so we we see her in in soliloquy and meditation turn within and and this selfish turn, and then with Adam when when Eve brings him the fruit, you can see he he it's it's a classic sort of aspect of sin that he puts a secondary good above the primary good. So he loves Eve mm -hmm. and he's, and he, in his devotion to her puts her above obedience to God. And so, so then he also eats one of the interesting things about these different. So uh, sorry, I, I should go back. That's a way in which Milton gives us a m sort of multifaceted view of what disobedience is or sin that he, he explores it with these different characters in different ways. It's a very rich poem. We also see how Satan came to sin. He, he envies the son of God and that's how he, he comes to, to give birth to sin. Then after that, it's, it's also as one would expect Adam and Eve, uh, after they eat the fruit are initially happy. They're in fact elevated and Milton describes it as intoxication. Essentially they're, they're drunk on the fruit, but that leads to great unhappiness. And so then you get the first marital fight in history between Adam <laughs> and Eve after, after they come to their senses, they're very angry at each other. And so you can see here again, that the sort of the disobedience and sin has this immediate reward that then brings its own punishment uh, and, uh, and and they are not made happy by it. No couch for Adam to sleep on <laughs> nope. at that point. <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, big question here uh, on Milton and the subjects of fate yeah. and free will. Are Adam and Eve ma even making a choice yeah. when, they, when they do what they do? Yeah, uh, that's, an, that's a great question. I'm convinced that Milton thinks they do and that 
that part of what Milton M Milton is in he doesn't fit easily into any theological camp in the, in the in the Reformation. Uh, so he's a very interesting figure to read. Uh, he takes sort of bits from the different traditions and 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 builds his own sort of theological system. But uh, he definitely wants to assert the importance of will. Uh, and and showing that they are choosing. So we get uh, God the Father as a character in the poem spends a good bit of time wanting to make sure that Adam and Eve understand the rules so that they're not uh, – so that they can't say, oh, well, we didn't know. Uh -huh. uh, he wants them them to have uh, in a will that's informed by intellect that see things sees things in their in their right relation and uh and then chooses to sin nevertheless so that's that's part of part of milton's uh conviction there i think i think he he wants to assert the possible nobility of the of the right will at one point adam refers to his his sin uh, translated into a, a happy fault yeah what good is Milton saying can come of the fall of humankind? Yeah, so that that's a great question, and it's it's very interesting. Milton uh, uh, gives us that line in books eleven and twelve. In books eleven and twelve, God, the Father, when he's after Adam and Eve have sinned, he sends the archangel Michael to banish Adam and Eve from the garden, and he says, "When you do so, give them a vision of what's to come, so that they they don't despair, so that they can have some hope." And so Michael does, and in this vision of and and so there in books eleven and twelve, we get a little a quick retelling of really all of biblical history, hmm. and Adam is heartened, of course, when he comes to see. Uh, Christ's suffering and death for us. And Adam is so moved by this vision that he and, and confused that God would take on flesh and and suffer for us. Adam thinks, uh, I'm I almost don't regret my sin now. I'm almost happy. This is all oh happy, should I say happy fault that I did this, that it would lead to such a triumph. And and it, it, it is interesting. The archangel will correct him and 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 advise him that don't be happy about sin. <laughs> but it is a sign of God's overwhelming goodness uh, that he will redeem it in in this such a manner. Final question for Dr. Whalen on Paradise Lost, really about Bilton, I guess. Yeah. He was blind at yes. this point of his life. So certainly yes. I mean he, he, there were parts of Paradise Lost that perhaps worked on previously, but certainly when you get to Paradise Regained. He's writing that completely yeah. blind. Yeah. What? How does that work with? For, for yeah. Him? He. It, it's an. It's incredible. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He was blind, and it, this is also where literary history gets so strange because, of course, you have the the tradition from antiquity that Homer, the great epic poet, was also blind, mm -hmm. and then here we have the great English epic poet <laughs> Milton, who who does indeed he loses his sight uh, by the mid 1650s, and so he wrote this poem, coming up with the lines in his head and reciting them to a secretary who would then read them back to him. It just a astonishing. Uh, it's astonishing, especially when you go and look at the quality of this poetry. Mm -hmm. the, it, it is blank verse. It's iambic pentameter. It is lovely and powerful and, and high, highly uh, uh, poetically sophisticated. It's really a remarkable achievement. Dr. Ben Whalen, Associate Professor of English at Hillsdale College, talking about John Milton and Paradise Lost. Dr. Whalen, thanks for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thanks for having me, Scott. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Molly Hemingway, Senior Journalism Fellow here at Hillsdale College, Brandon Weikert and his recent book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and Dr. Ben Whalen from Hillsdale's English Department. The Radio Free Hillsdale Hour is recorded at the studios of WRFH, the student-run radio station at Hillsdale College. Remember, you can hear new episodes every week on the station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews or listen anytime to the podcast. 
find it at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. The assistant producer of the program is Sam Lair. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.